It's like Lionel Richie, fundamentally, just like sheer songwriting craft, overcomes all association. Easy Like Sunday Morning is a tune, but so is uh, Dancing on the Ceiling, Running with the Night, with Steve Lukather on guitar. So is, uh, I mean, um, Say You, Say Me, the classic about the blind sculptress and the art teacher who really shouldn't be having a relationship with her. Hello, is it me you're looking for? No, I'm just in the wrong classroom. I'm just going to perv on you for a bit while you do a life-size sculpture of my head. Genuinely think that sort of like they had slightly more lax rules about these things back in the day. The, the, the 80s was quite a strange time. In between health and safety and social conservatism, as a decade in general. It was a very odd time. It was a, it was a time of the music video. And I, um, I don't know if, if, if you've ever, you know, had MTV or what used to be VH1 in the background, but if you look at the videos of the, of the period, have you noticed, I'm just going to throw this out, seeing as we're recording, and this is obviously going to be the episode of us talking bollocks. Yeah. Have you noticed in every music video from the 80s, whether it's Culture Club, Duran Duran, The Spandows, or anything, at some point, two people fencing will fence their way across the screen, as in as in not not like putting a garden fence up, but with, with Epe and Matt mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. will do all of that. And then to signal emotional anguish and, and turmoil, everything will go in slow motion, like a coffee cup will hit the wall in slow motion and explode to show the death of the relationship. For me, I can't really talk about music in the 1980s. I can, I can sort of like stereotype music in the 1980s, but literally for me, my interest in music started in 1992. You are not that much younger than me. What yeah, were I know, you but it was very, very quiet, and I didn't really explore music at all. What were you exploring? It wasn't Doug Tunyon in the... I don't know literature. I was reading a lot of Terry Pratchett. Well, you say literature. There's still some debate about that, although obviously not on this particular podcast. So in the 80s, you, you missed, I mean, God, th those two men who fenced in every music video in the 80s, if they were on an hourly rate, they must have been minted. We should actually email Crossy and see if he knows them and see if they're part of the British, <laughs> British Olympic fencing team. See, oh, it was lads. actually them that taught Brian Reynolds how to uh, run. Yeah. Um, hello, lads. Yeah, have you got an Olympics this year? No, no, I'm afraid we haven't. We're just training really hard. Great, because we've got half a dozen music videos and we need you to fence your way across Hampstead Heath on them. Can you do that for us? Sure. Usual rate. Yes, we'll see you at six o'clock for makeup. Now, so what are we going to talk about today on this episode of Talking Bollocks? Well, um, the Talking Bollocks episode, we've just found out, and I've just found out, that um, my partner in pod uh, doesn't have a bad word to say about Lionel Richie, which was not what I was expecting. Do, 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 you, know, do you know what it's based on? My fundamental belief in Lionel Richie's everlasting coolness is based on. Uh, okay, let's hear it. Okay, so fundamentally there was a... I think it was called Chasing Britney. And it was about these paparazzis whose entire job was Britney Spears back when she was essentially going batshit nuts. That's obviously a technical medical term, yes, but yeah. we'll take it. Um, and getting a picture of Britney when she was trying to make her comeback and was trying to make it all work again, that was, that was like kind of worth, $10,000 or something like that, if you've got the right. right picture of Britney. So it was, 
it was like it was real kind of gold rush stuff. And there's all these paparazzis driving around in their black SUVs, chasing from place to place, trying to work out where she's going to be. Except you didn't get the picture of Britney every day. So what you're essentially belting around Hollywood in your SUV, you still have to make petrol money. So they take pictures of other stars. And all these stars, all Britney, all the you know, Ben Affleck's and Jennifer Hudson's and all the people they were taking pictures of back then, let's face this, this was probably like 2003 or something. They'd all kind of like put on the big shades and they'd hide their face and stuff. And then there was Lionel Richie. And he leapt out in front of him and said, Oi, Lionel! And the guy just looked at him, stood up straight and said, that good? That good for you? Is that working? Hey man, what's your name? Cool. Where are you sending these? Okay, great. I'm going to put out a good word for you with my agent. I'll see you soon. And he was just totally cool about it. He just like totally accepted. This is my life. I'm a star. I have to do this. He handled it. He handled and, it. And he just handled it with a smile, with impact. And, and this guy who he was dealing with was a low life. You know, I don't, I don't know how much of like a decent human being low life he was, but he was living an absolute low life existence. He was basically a Brit, Brit in Los Angeles, probably without a work permit, desperately trying to get rich quick off someone else's fame. Absolute low life. And then Lionel Richie just turned out, turned up the decency to 11. And was just really, really kind to him. And really, really decent, chilled out, calm and polite to someone who didn't deserve it. Which the moral of the story being that we're going to have situations in our lives where nowadays we are told to get angry and get in people's faces and fight for our corner and and point the finger and get involved in Twitter flame wars. But what we should do is handle it with cool grace and impeccable poise. But unfortunately, none of us are as Lionel Richie as Lionel Richie. It is impossible to be as Lionel Richie as Lionel Richie because he is Lionel Richie. And if we try to be Lionel Richie, we would just be very pale Lionel Richie imitators in every sense of the word pale. We are not indeed as easy like Sunday morning as he is. And speaking of which, now I found out this amazing fact about you that that you have a, a secret sneaking regard for, well, not so secret anymore, for Lionel Richie. Favourite Lionel Richie track. If you ever renewed your vows and had to choose a Lionel Richie tr- track for your first number, and I'm sure that your wife would, would nix it very, very rightly, but which one would you go with? Well, you see, that's completely the wrong question because I know what my favourite Lionel Richie track and let's dance with my father again so it's like that's going to work well at a wedding yeah it's not but i mean you see that that's the one that you know i'm actually thinking it's like that's a tune because it's it's just such a heartfelt tune so what are we talking about then because this is a rowing podcast and so far we're a couple of minutes in and we've we've talked about lionel richie and paparazzi and britney spears uh, and britney spears and if you were a swordsman in the 80s, and that's a swordsman in the literal sense of the word rather than a, the euphemistic sense of the word, you could earn a fortune appearing on music videos. 
in a way that you probably can't now. And if you're a coffee cup manufacturer, you could earn a fortune by providing coffee cups for them to smash in slow motion against the wall. A lot has happened, Lewin, since the last time that we sat down to talk bollocks. I mean, I, I think, and I'm throwing this out there, and it's not on the schedule, and I like to do this because it keeps you on your toes, a little bit like, you know, setting off at rate 38 when you're expecting rate 18. I think that Broken Nose Podcast has become a little bit formulaic. We, um, we get world-class guests on, they say world-class things, and then we sod off. It's been a long time since we've basically talked nonsense with each other. Have we Have we become stuck in a rut? Have we become dependent on world-class I, I think it's a pretty good rut, but I think we have got away from our original mission of two men of a certain age cracking wise about the sport of rowing and about how fundamentally it was all better back in the day albeit the day is like 2008 doesn't really seem that long ago in fact frankly it's just like yesterday it's like Obama got elected that's just like that's a couple of days ago right wing riggers were just becoming popular you know it's it's, it's a great idea you know it'll they, never catch on <laughs> it's 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 some witchcraft okay i'm looking at the schedule and literally, we've got 11 pages there. 11 pages, including 10 fundamentally heavy metal albums. Have you written about all, all five of yours? No, I, I don't think that we will actually get to our favourite Erg albums on this episode, because oh, I, think, I think we have so much to talk about that is rowing related, that isn't rowing related, that is just, I mean, I mean, let's, let's look at what's happened since the last time we sat down and talked utter rubbish. Well, we've had a whole pandemic, but actually let's Somebody just Somebody kind of- has made a movie about rowing. It's called Heart of Champions and it stars a tall, lanky, Norwegian looking bloke with blonde hair who is cast as having the biggest rowing machine score in the boat. Can I just weigh straight in on this? You're raising your hands in the air because you, you seem to think that because you are tall and lanky and always had the biggest score in our boat, that this is a movie about you. But I'm going to go out on a limb here and it might be a very, it might be a limb that's creaking in a high wind and it might be a limb that's about to snap. But I'm going to say that this rowing movie is going to be absolute and utter poo. And I'm basing this on the fact that every single rowing movie that I've ever seen or any any movie that I've seen that has rowing in it has been utter poo. So for example, let's take a let's take a nonsensical one. John Hannah in Sliding Doors. I know he was rowing on the Tideway. I know that Furnival and a couple of other clubs down near the Blue Anchor probably got huge amounts of wedge to sit him in a boat and make him look like he was rowing. Martin Cross obviously didn't teach John Hanna how to row before he got in in that boat. I've I've never seen anyone so uncoordinated since the last time I saw video footage of myself on the water. It was terrible. Utterly terrible. Well, I've I've been posting a lot of video footage of myself recently, and I've discovered a different angle, and I've just realised my technique on the erg is barely passable. The drive is great. The drive is great, but the recovery, it's just like, yeah, do you, do you actually feel like rocking over at any point? And, you know, literally the whole way down the slide. This is just the ergo. This is just the ergo. I can't be that bad. No one can see this, water. but my, my hand is literally in the air going, please, miss, please, miss. Ask me the next question. Let me say the next bit. I've rode with you. You never had a recovery anyway. It was just bang, then, and then bang, and then bang. And oh, he's doing the bang thing. I'll just keep up with him then. 
which wasn't a bad thing. Actually, you say this, uh, we have a coach down at uh, Tyne United, wonderful club, wonderful people, who has blown my mind recently. On Thursday, there is like a gym session where we do uh, ergs and where we have a circuit. He's a lovely young man called Dan. And I can say that even though he's in his, his mid twenties ish, because I'm now of an age where anyone who is basically under 40 is a lovely young man or an absolute git. One of the two. Apparently, do you remember at Agecroft, we were told to mimic whatever we do in the boat, do it on the erg so that we are reinforcing the pattern. According to Dan, the handle has to go straight in and out parallel with the floor because otherwise it catches on the flywheel and slows your score down. Not that my score could get much slower at the moment. So all of that lovely movement around the turn that I've been making for all of these years is um, apparently a no-go anymore. So I wouldn't worry about your technique. I don't even strain my arms until the catch. Literally, I'm, I'm going along with this like slightly, if you can imagine a mummy wandering towards you, the way its arms are kind of, they're out in front of it, but the wrists are sort of dangling down. The arms are just about straight. That's my arms coming forward on the recovery. Well, you say that about a mummy, but I have seen you after a heavy night and it sounds remarkably close to chucking out time at walkabout. That's all I'm saying. Um, but anyway, no, there, there is actually one very good movie that contains rowing. Is it Vikings with Kirk Douglas and Tony Curtis when he does the thing when he, when he runs across the banks of oars as they come into the fjord? I just love saying the word fjord. Let me just say it again. Fjord. It's a good word. word. I've seen that movie. I just can't remember it well enough to say yes. It probably isn't because I don't believe that rowing should ever take place without a sliding seat. The idea of just like spending that much time doing arms and body only. It's right. just like, yeah, mate, I'd trip myself. It but, can't be. It can't be because I know how you feel about Topolsky. It can't be the one about him rescuing the Oxford Cambridge boat race by sheer force of personality and winning smile. It was that true blue or and 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 winning the and winning the toss. Uh, no, it's definitely not true blue. It is the social network by David Fincher. That has a very good sequence, uh, supposedly at Henley with the Winklevi twins. With the Winklevi, yes. Um, and actually, as far as I'm concerned, that is the best representation of rowing committed to celluloid I've yet seen up until the glorious quote in Heart of Champions. Uh, and it shows you kind of like how the, the what can only be described as the compromises that have been made in this, where the crusty old coach, coach asked the upstart arrogant blonde, Norwegian-looking type, if he thinks, but why he thinks he can lead this boat from the stroke seat. said, because I've got the biggest rowing machine score. <laughs> and at that point, I just, yes, this is my favourite fictional character of all time. Jesus Christ on a... I mean, did the script writers not actually talk to some rowers before they did this? I, I, I think they, they probably did, and... and but, you know, you can tell it's less like, hang on, rowing machine. They didn't call it an ergo. That, you know, they, they probably struggled with that moment for years. It's like, do we actually put 20 seconds of exposition explaining rowing machine? It's not a rowing machine. 
It's not an ergometer, it's an ergo. That's what we call them. We are rowers. We have words for things. Yeah, but they could have just done that at the start of the movie by every time anyone gets on a rowing machine, an erg, they just said, oh, I'm going off to do my 21K on the erg now. Oh, I'm going to do my test on the erg now. Audiences aren't that retarded. They're going to go, oh, he's on a rowing machine and he's calling it an erg. I wonder if rowers call it an erg because he's a rower, so he's calling it an erg. You know, little light bulb moments here. The reason why I think that this that, that, that this is going to be poo, okay, is this. Every book that I've read thus far about rowing and every movie that I've read or, read or seen, I read the text. I'm intertexting with the movie. It's, it's, a, it's a whole Bath's author God bringing you your own meaning to the text, regardless of the media thing, has emphasized the pain, the self-negation, the, the, the elite fitness of these athletes, how, how hard they work. And the thing is, yes, at the top level of sport, it's painful and you work hard and you go to your limits and beyond and it breaks you mentally and physically. And, you know, you end up coming out and having to have hip surgery and back surgery and all sorts of surgeries and counseling and all of this sort of stuff. But none of us actually get into rowing unless they're called Lewin to hurt ourselves. We get, we get into rowing because we like to move a boat. The feeling of moving a boat gives us pleasure. It's fun. It's enjoyable. And yet we have all of these books and all of these movies that it's painful and it's a noble quest. And the more you suffer, the better you get. And it's like, Jesus Christ, man, life has got suffering enough in it. I literally do just think that's elite sport. Do you remember Ed Moses? How can you like track and field? How can you forget Ed Moses? The I, I can't forget his beard. As a child, it haunted me. It followed me around the room at night when I tried to sleep. And if I did fall asleep, I was then pursued across Hampstead Heath by two people fencing each other. Never could understand that. He said he knew there were times that he was going to go to the track and do interval sessions so brutal that he was literally almost in tears on the way there. I just, I just think literally that's what happens in elite sport. It is, but you don't have to ennoble it. You don't have to have to make it the 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 barrier level of entry for people getting involved in sport. For example, I have a very simple relationship with pain. Okay, I don't like it. That's that is it basically. As a rower, I have a very complex relationship with pain because. I, I row because I love to move a boat and I love to move a boat with my friends and I love to move a boat in a good crew and with, with people and I love to be on the water. Part of that is you have to learn to embrace pain as a rower because everything about the sport is uncomfortable or hurts at some point. If you, if you can't cope with pain, you'll never finish a 2K test. You'll never even finish an, an 18K set of pieces. And there are times, and you will remember this because I've been watching your Instagram feed, um, you've been doing some Pyramids of Doom. We used to go down on a Wednesday night for Pyramids of Doom, knowing that at some point we'd end up curled around the toilet bowl in between each block, trying to throw up and failing because our stomach muscles were so spasmed. And I loved that. I loved pushing myself as hard as I could. I thought that being able to spit out flecks of blood on the pavement afterwards was, yes, this is going to help me move the boat. It's a sign I'm a real rower. But if you were to turn up in Newcastle, and you can't because you still haven't got your passport sorted out, and kick me in the bollocks, I wouldn't want you to do it. <laughs> okay, so in my defence, I will say that I started rowing on a rowing machine. I didn't go to a boathouse. I saw the rowing machine 
in between giving up swimming. And that's basically what made me give up swimming. Right. The rowing machine. I will say that currently there are about three times as many people who are regularly engaging with the rowing machine as there are who are regularly engaging with the boat. <clears throat> yeah, I've seen the figures. So I think there's a lot to be said for the fact that there are actually lots and lots of people who actually quite like hurting themselves on the rowing machine. Yeah, there's a certain, there's a certain, I've done a good session. There's a certain, I've worked hard there. There's a certain, there's a certain pride you get in not having given in. But if the sport's only narrative, and this is something that Jack talked about um, when he was on, if the sport's only narrative is come to us and suffer rather than come to us, participate and have fun. Well, that's the reason why we're hemorrhaging people. This is, this is basically going to be one of the big messages from, one of, uh, from our next Broken Oars Indoors, where it's Justin and Stephen from Live to Row, which mm-hmm. is a Florida-based uh, indoor rowing and online rowing training studio, I guess. Uh, they just do lots of online classes and in-person classes on rowing machines. And they said the number one thing that you've got to not tell people is that it's all about how much you can hurt yourself because people don't actually like that. And so you have to, you know, if somebody wants to hurt themselves on the wrong machine, they'll, they'll find a way They'll They will be drawn into it anyway. Um, if they don't, then there's no point telling themselves it's all about the pain. Um, that being said, CrossFit have made a lot of money and have created a lot of CrossFitters by going around and saying it's all about the pain. I've said I've got a complex relationship with pain as a, as, as a rower. As a human being, I, I don't like it. It hurts. As a rower, I embrace it because it means I'm getting better. It means that, it means that I'm, not, I'm not giving into the fear of, of how much it's going to hurt. And I, you know, I was never winning Olympic gold medals or any of those things. I'm, I'm not Steve Redgrave. I'm not crying in the corner of the boat shed on the morning of the Sydney Olympic final going, get me out of here. But I would think there's a 2K test next Wednesday and it would be literally at work, social occasions, outings in between, sessions in between. There's a 2K test coming. It's really, really going to hurt. There's a 30-minute test coming. It's really, really going to hurt. And part of the... Um, Part of the payoff is knowing it's going to hurt and doing it anyway. You know, you know, the, the working definition of bravery is being scared, but doing it anyway and doing it well. And that was always part of the pride I took in being a rower, that even though I wasn't the, the, the fastest or the strongest, I didn't give in to the pain or, or the fear of the pain. And I took a perverse, as with Dennis's Pyramids of Doom, I took a perverse amount of pride at being able to pull so hard that I would, you know, I would lose vision and then spit up chunks of blood on the walk home. Or more appropriately, the walk to Tesco's to buy our performance enhancing drugs at Agecroft, which were, of course, chocolate croissants and ice cream. Um, Although on the really bad days when we needed the hardcore stuff to get by, it was almond croissants. Well, yes, it was. And and if if it had been a really, really, really bad session, we would just, we'd go to um, the Salford Red cinema, pick a crap movie and basically clean out their sweet store, which led to 
Ben's diabetes, but that's another story when we'll be told another time. Is Ben fat these days? The last time I saw Ben, he looked he looked a very slim, svelte figure of a man with thighs like young oak trees. Uh-huh. Uh, whereas Matt Bucknell looked exactly the same, which was long, <laughs> tall, languid, and every lady within a 50-mile radius just went, oh, Matthew. It's so irritating, isn't it? It's incredibly irritating. And, and you know, he's very, very happily married with two beautiful children, and, and yet he just... He can, he just has this effect. It's amazing he never got into a band or something. He didn't need to, I guess. That was the thing. He wasn't like... <laughs> he just got the adulation without having to learn how to play an instrument or sing. He didn't need music to get female attention. He just walked into a room and went, hello. And that was it. <laughs> that was it. It was brilliant. God bless him. So, um, okay, so we... So, so you reckon it's going to be poo because it's all going to be about the pain? I just think that we've had a lot of sports movies where it's about the pain and the suffering and the self-negation for the moment of triumph. Now, to, to, to jump track slightly and come back around on this, you've seen the movie Whiplash, haven't you? The drumming movie. No, I haven't. I've heard about it. Okay. It's pretty good. It's, it's based on a true story, he lied. Um, essentially, Whiplash, when you watch it, is a sports movie. Because the Miles Teller character is essentially being repeatedly told by the J.K. Simmons character, who is the essentially, as the conductor, he is the coach, the abusive coach, to play faster, play faster, play double time swing faster, not my tempo, not my tempo, play faster, till his hands are bleeding. It's not about musicality. It's not about the beautiful, the beauty of music. It's not about creating something within, with, within the context of the jazz orchestra and working with other musicians. It's about his pain and suffering getting fitter and faster and fitter and faster and the, the bleeding hands and the sweat dripping onto the drum kit. It's a sports movie. It's not a movie about music. Yeah, but strictly actually... speaking, it's a movie about a drummer. So what do you expect? Well, yes, there is that. I mean, they're not known for their sense of nuance, rhythm or timing, but moving swiftly on before any drummers in the audience take a swing at us. The, the, the narrative arc of the sports movie is always the same, and you can see it in Whiplash. It's a sports movie. It's not about playing music. It's about playing faster and harder. And sports movies are all about getting faster and harder and the pain and the suffering. And do you not think it would be nice occasionally to, to have a movie where you actually get the sense that you get in a boat when it's moving really well. And I'm thinking of that night that you came out with us at, at Agecroft and we tonked the first eight a couple of times, or, you know, Rutherford Head for us was always a, a touchstone rope where the boat just feels like it's singing through the water and it's fantastic rather than, you know, the week before when I had to do my 30 minute test and, and ended up, you know, on the floor in a puddle of sweat afterwards going, I'm never fucking doing that again. Of course I did, but there you go. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's like, I mean, basically, which movie is that? That, that's Jack Beaumont's movie, isn't it? That is. The plucky Cub Scullers come together and very, very nearly take down the arrogant Euro trash overlords from, from Holland, because fundamentally they're better, smoother and sweeter rowers. And what you can have is like, you could kind of have death metal playing whenever you see the Dutch rowing. And you could have... Chamber music. No, no, something Martin Taylor. Oh, good choice of... Sublime jazz guitar whenever you see the British quad going through the water. And they're they're just like sublime and rhythmic. and, and, And the Dutch are just like big, lanky Dutch meatheads. 
Yeah, but I, I um, don't... Who are probably stoned, and so they can't feel pain. Probably. I mean, do they? I mean, it's legal in in Poland, but do they actually? Te- I mean, right? Maybe that's why they they had such a shonky row and why the British led them for so long. It actually took them seventeen hundred meters before they put the joint down and started pulling. <laughs> They're just passing it back in time. We've got time. Oh, it's we've we've got time. We've we've still got twelve hundred to catch them. Even better than kind of like death metal when you see the Dutch. They can play Ramstein. Oh my god. KMFDM or something like that. Some really nasty German techno metal. You say that, but even though Jack is a, a lovely chap and I think one of British rowing's greatest available assets at the moment, um, and probably for the foreseeable future, I know that he probably trained just as hard, if not harder. You, you, because he, he talked about them being somewhat underdogs and he talked about not being the biggest in, in, in the squad and how much he, he had to work. So he's, he's been there. He's been on a, you know, in a puddle on the floor. And also, if you start playing lovely jazz music and you see them going up and down the Henley Reach with lots of, okay, chaps, power tens, um, it's feeding into the whole idea of the British gentleman amateur. And that wasn't tenable in the Victorian period. And it's sure as shit isn't tenable now. You know, every rower does it for the love of the sport. There's no, there's no money in it. it. Doesn't matter whether you're at Oxford, Cambridge, Hull, one of the great universities. Whether you're turning out for Time United, whether you're taking the juniors out, you know, are you doing a session before work and a session after work because you want to get to Henley? It's all for the love of the sport. No one's paying us. No, that's true. Um, I, I think that's one of the reasons why the myth of of it is quite popular. But I also think one of the reasons of why the mythos of it it is quite pro- popular is because fundamentally even if they're not necessarily able to do that themselves people respect the ability to absolutely go to the wall and particularly if it's for no money whatsoever football is kind of tainted by money and i i think footballers actually get way too much stick for this particularly from rowers because you know when you think about it we train 11 months a year to race eight times (laughs) they train three months a year to play best part of it's kind of august to may isn't it and then you've got all your european comps one home one away then you've got all your european you've got the fa cup if you're doing well in that you can play, and by the end of the season, you're going to be carrying a load of injuries. And it's just it's, it, it's sport. It's just not as we rowers understand and know it. And it's all about just getting to the end of it, making the best of what you got. Whatever sport we talk about, trying to take the mythos of pain and suffering out of the top end isn't going to help because people genuinely approve of and like that mythos of working harder and tolerating more than anything else. People admire that. I will agree with that because there's something redemptive about it and it, show, it shows the, the almost limitless uh, ability of, of humanity to cope with, with extremes and to strive and to rise and to build and to overcome adversity and actually how much you can really do if you really push yourself 
and if you really go for it. But I'm going to go back to our witness the fitness episode, and you know, I I don't sit in bed at night and and lovingly listen back to our episodes, going, by God, we turned some fine sentences there. But we did point out, for example, I think that our parents are roughly about the same age. When my mum started running, she was about forty and had never run a step in her life. And doing a marathon was a big thing. And she's she's run more marathons than I have. I've, I've rode the distance, but I've never run the distance. And doing one or two marathons was a was a huge achievement. Whereas now, Eddie Izzard's run twenty six and twenty six days. You know, um, the the rugby player Kevin Sinfield has done something similar for his friend Rob Burrows, uh, who has MS or motor neuron disease. So we can The human potential is almost limitless, but it's no longer enough that you've done one marathon. You need to have done three. It's no longer enough that you've done the marathon de Sable. You need to have done, you know, the across America thing, which led to to James getting injured. It's no longer enough that you've climbed Everest. You have to have done it without oxygen. And then we see people retiring from the top end of sport and going in for massive surgeries immediately afterwards. This is literally it. I mean, and we have a word for this. It is Achilles' choice. Achilles. A short life, but an interesting one, or a long life, but a boring one. The Greeks came up with that when the, the average life expectancy was six. Okay, I'm not- eight. But again, it, it is a fundamental... It's a human choice that we recognise absolutely and the cost of pursuing greatness. And we admire those who take that gamble. And and let's face it, that admiration is rewarded with fame, money, and I I think in all cases it's rewarded with increased sexual opportunity the fr- the sentence you were looking for was was matt bucknell-esque levels of attention from the opposite sex i believe yeah but i mean i i think that most women would actually find it a little bit disturbing receiving matt bucknell levels of attention however i found it disturbing and i was just standing next to him um i i think most top end female athletes probably also gain a greater value as a wife. Well, that's just lost us half of our listenership. Quite possibly. We might want to edit that. I don't know, but I'm I'm just like saying, okay, put it this way. You were Sally Gunnell's husband. Yeah. Would you consider cheating on her? Christ, no, she'd kick the shit out of me. There you go. I wouldn't anyway, because I am monogamous. Uh, it, it's the way I was brought up. It's the, it's the Roman Catholic beaten down Geordie in me. I was being flippant when I say we've just lost our female listenership, because I, I, I actually want to pivot now. James Cracknell, he was recently on I'm an SAS dancer, get me out of here, or whatever it's called, something like that. I'm an SAS got talent idol thing, testing his physical capacity again. I didn't actually watch this, but I heard all of the ladies down at the boat shed talking about James Cracknell being on, I'm, I'm an SAS dancer, get me out of here. And they were saying, basically, James Cracknell is an SAS dancer, get me into there. And he mentioned, uh, and he didn't say anything bad about his, his now ex-wife, but he mentioned that after his injury, um, he became viewed for, through the prism of his, uh, of, of his injury. And his ex-wife, Beverly Turner, um, seemed to he felt somewhat limited him 
and it really affected his confidence. Now, I've always looked at James Cracknell as being a man possibly with some kind of issues because his his level of crass tactlessness, blunt forthrightness, and and self-confidence, which seemed to spring from him like a natural resource, like there was just an Atlantic an Atlantic Ocean of self-confidence going, I am James Cracknell, look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair, even if I can't row on the other side. So for him to say that his confidence got knocked really made me think about uh, James at that point, because I've never thought of him as being someone whose confidence would ever, ever, ever take a dent. Yeah, but he did get smacked in the head by a truck. So I, I think that can literally dent most people's self-confidence and self-worth. Yeah, but the truck has now has now been scrapped and James has gone on to row in the boat race. So, I mean, we, we all know who the long-term winner was there. Indeed, this is true, James Cracknell. Um, I'm not sure if he necessarily sees it that way. I think one of the things about this, if you look at, I mean, okay, again, we're doing this thing where we're reducing rowing to the Sydney four. But if you look at the guys in that four, who was the one who seemed the calmest before the race? Who was the wrong one who was like, actually, process, process, process? It was Tim. Because, I mean, presumably, that's what he was good at. They said, Cracknell just was listening to the Red Hot Chili Peppers and looking completely manic. Pinson was vomiting. Yep. What's and his Red- face? Uh, Redgrave. <laughs> yeah, you know him. Redgrave was basically just looking around for any excuse not to have to go and do the race. And the one who was just sitting there, okay, admittedly by his own account, just doing his stretches and hoping his back didn't go pain, was Tim Foster. And I think there is also this this thing that we're starting to come to realise is that great champions maybe completely faking it on the mental side. And when your sports psychologist is out there saying, actually, what separates the great champions, what separates the gold medal from the silver medal is, you know, it's the mental game. Again, as I've said frequently, sports psychologists would say that, wouldn't they? Why is that, Loon? Is that because because they, they need someone to hire them to talk sports psychology to athletes? A bit like nutritionists, really. Yeah. Um, eat food, lots of it. There you go. Um, <laughs> the invoice is in the book. £40,000 a year, thank you. Do you, do you want some recipes? I can look them up on the internet for you. Fundamentally, it may not be the, the people with the best mentality who do win, it may be the people who can fake the right mentality up until they cross the line win, who can just patch it together mentally. And it may be that they are going through absolute internal agonies. They're not in control of their mental state. They're just in control of the external thing. And it's like the first time the mental game to end all mental games, apparently, won Wimbledon and he said come on just stick it into the net any sports psychologist will tell you 
That is literally the worst, most negative, most wrong thing you can be thinking at that moment in time is hoping that is looking for a negative to get you out of having to play. Not the mentality of a great champion, except yeah. Roger Federer, we probably all agree is one of the greatest champions ever. He's the greatest tennis player of all time. And I don't care how many Rafael Nadal fans we lose after that, or Novak Djokovic fan. Roger Bannister was the first person to run the four-minute mile. In the weeks that followed, I think it's something like 16 or 18 people went on to do it. But Roger Bannister is the one that we remember. Federer reached 20 major titles, playing the game as God would want the game to be played. So just to kind of cycle back, there's, there's, there, there are two questions, and I am coming back to, to James Crackle in a minute. We've touched upon our relative ages. We're both in our 40s now. If you could have one Henley, but would now be walking with sticks, would you take the Henley medal? No. Would it need to be more than a Henley medal? No, it, it just wouldn't. That's... If you... If you asked me 15 years ago, I'd have given I'd have given you a different answer. You're asking me now, it's like no. So, so strictly speaking, it's a very strange thing because it's what uh, it's, it's something I learned from. There's another movie. It was a very charming movie about this guy. It's not Time Traveler's Wife. It's the nice version, the English version of that about this guy who learns from his dad that he can travel through time. Ginger guy. Yeah. And it's called About Time. Genuinely lovely. And he met, he does this thing where he, he realises he can change things and get away with it. He goes back in time basically to save his sister from something. And then he comes back and he realises that he, because he went back in time before his daughter was born, he now had a son. Mm. And it's like, it's one of those things. It's like, if you were to go back in time, it's just like, yeah, it goes back like no further than March 2015. The thing is that I can't actually consider going back in any way that would mean I might not meet my wife. Winning Henley would have probably thrown a kind of like, my wife, my life would have been different if I'd won Henley in two thousand and five mm. with Furnival. Would have never have happened. But yeah, so it, it's one of those things. You know, it's it's like I can't actually conceive of that. But that sort of like to a certain extent, I'm making that decision almost as we speak. You know, I was at the gym today and I was doing six by two minutes for the cross-team challenge, the sub-seven. And it's a blast. And I did better than I did last time. It's this really, really silly thing. And it's like, and I, I did this one. And I really, really pushed myself. And it does hurt. And genuinely, I can feel it right now. And strictly speaking, I don't think that a 45-year-old man should be doing these things with such stupid abandon. Yeah. But if I was being sensible, if I was thinking about not walking with sticks when I'm 70, 
mm-hmm. I'd be thinking, you know what? I should probably knock these kind of like two minute intervals on the head. I should definitely not be about to from next week onwards engage in a series of like ridiculous proper sub 120 split training pieces for a 500 meter ergo in December. That's just like a stupid idea. But at the same time, you do have to balance enjoyment and safety. You have to sit there and say, I'm not about to stop, you know, drinking a lot. I'm not about to take up heroin. You need something in your life outside of just work and family. And that thing needs to be a little bit dangerous and short-termist. And so you need to work on the most constructive and cheapest thing you can do. I can't believe that you're not taking up heroin. I mean, you are just no fun anymore. That's going to be my 80th birthday treat. So this is basically, you will remember this because you're a proper sports scientist rather than just, you know, a northern monkey like what I is. A while ago, there was a survey of athletes who said, you, if you take this, you will win a gold medal, but there is an X percent chance that you will then die young. The Florence Griffith Joyner model of athletics. Yes. And an overwhelming majority said, I'll take the gold medal. Because when you're in your 20s, the idea of being in your 70s and, and you know, breathing through a tube is inconceivable. You know, like, like 16 years. In your 70s, full stop. You know, it, it's, one of, it's one of these things that, you know, athletes, um, the higher up the tree you go, athletes tend not to be particularly rational about their activity. Actually, I, I think professional athletes do this a lot more. But they don't just say, I'm going to do just enough to last for as long as I can. What they say is I'm going to, I have to be ready to put my body and soul and heart and lungs and everything on the line in order to win. Otherwise it's all a waste. It's all not worthwhile. I'm going to the Olympics. I'm going to win the premiership. And, you know, if if you talk to, I think it's Rio Ferdinand, Mm. Might have been Pete. Who was the Chelsea player? Which uh, one? Lampard. Frank Lampard. Frank Lampard. Frank yeah. Lampard. That generation, they actually said they were so obsessed with the Premier League and the European Cup that they killed the England team for mm. a generation yeah. because they could never truly be open with the guys in the England team who are from other big four clubs. Um, I think Gary Neville's just done an interview with Jamie Carragher where they they both basically said they wouldn't even have arguments. They'd just avoid the players from other clubs when they were on England duty, you know, which is, which is, I mean, it's, it's honest now, but it's, you know, for a golden generation, it's not, it's not a particularly great, great thing just to circle back on on the mentality of champions then and this comes back to the this comes back to james crackle and i'm also going to throw into this mix here uh, greg searle because i've heard he's just about to be made 
director of uh, one of the largest pastry shops in Reading, uh, the, the Greggs. It's going to be a titular appointment. The ladies at the Boathouse were talking about James Cracknell being on I'm an SAS dancer, get me out of here. In much the same way that the ladies at the Boathouse were talking about James Cracknell when we were young and at Boathouses. And I'm just wondering if there is something in that thing maybe that kind of Neanderthal or great ape mentality where you just go, look at him. He has a big oak score. He will be a wonderful father for my children. And on a biological level, you are responding to that, but then you actually marry them and realize you have to live with the fact that they are obsessive, self-centered, crass to the point of tactlessness. So maybe the kind of the biological imperatives that go, you know, yes, give me your genes. Our children will be healthy, strong and vigorous are not the genes that you want to live with when they're leaving their dirty kit all over the house and they're not actually there to pick it up. Do I really want to get into I mean, the thing is, we're, we're, we're getting into some dark and disturbing areas, which is kind of like the. Cracknell's hair. Yeah, we've done Cracknell's hair before. It's not that dark and disturbing. It has its own camera team. We've already established that. And and the idea that... I'm not commenting directly upon his marriage or whatever happened between him and, and his wife. It's more this kind of whole thing, the very attractive traits in the opposite set are often deeply, are potentially deeply negative in the long term. And we're very very bad at realizing that because fundamentally our genes don't care if we're happy our genes just care if we are if those genes are passed on to the next generation someone's read the selfish gene indeed, um, indeed. uh yes I, i'm just i'm throwing it i mean there was a song you know back when people were, were, were fencing across hampstead heath in the background of music videos I think it was by Elvis Costello, and the first line was, pretty women are walking with gorillas down my street. Um, and there is something in that. I mean, Greg Searle, a man who couldn't be in a room with Matthew Pinsent or they would beat the shit out of each other, but he just has that craggy, dark-haired, alpha male, big erg score thing going on. Now, I may be paraphrasing slightly here, but a very, very recent quote about the Searle brothers is, they're both twats, but at least Greg's nice to look at. Um, we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. So if we're not talking about any of this stuff, I mean, what are we going to talk about on the podcast today? Shall we? So much has happened. We found out that our rivers are full of poo. We've also found out that actually, as a Novocastrian, you clearly don't mind pain because you've sold your football club. To- an authoritarian ethno-nationalist theocracy in the Middle East who's currently going to fire everyone who works there and replace them with Italians. Our football club, Newcastle United, has been taken over by a deeply repressive regime who are, who are oppressive to their women. Do you not think that the ladies of Newcastle are used to this with the lads that they marry, the poor sods? E, I'm getting out of the football pet. It's Saturday. Given how much fuss you made, it, it was Paolo, Paolo Di Canio, wasn't it? He took over at some... Right. No, I'm not having this. I know where you're going with this. Sunderland FC had Paolo Di Canio as a manager. Yes, they did. You're going to point out the fact he may He was have a had... self-declared fascist. Not a racist, apparently. 
was a fascist. I, it's very hard for me to say anything nice about the people of Sunderland because uh, because of because in much the same way that you can't say anything nice about Thames Road Club. About Thames, yes. I mean, basically, it's it's a place of misery and decay. But you will not remember this, but they they once employed a, employed a man called Peter Reed, who basically looked like a strategically shaved monkey in a suit. So I think we shouldn't pass judgment if they're willing to give great primates the chance of management in the Premiership. They can't be all bad. I mean, okay, they've let the odd fascist in. But so did so did the Daily Mail back in the 30s, repeatedly, basically talking about Saudi Arabia. And let's let's not talk about, you know, the 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 management group or the structure. It's basically Saudi Arabia has bought Newcastle United Football Club. You know, the, the it's not even a football club anymore. It's a bloody soap opera. It's like EastEnders, but at least EastEnders has breaks from misery, you know, when it's not actually on. This is sports washing. I know people, um, you know, in Newcastle who are over the moon about being the world's richest club. I know people down at the Boathouse who, who, who are, you know, thank God we're finally going to get some decent players. But they basically bought a Premier League club to pour their resources into in much the same way that um, Man City was bought. And, and if this is what it is, if this is where we've come on our journey as common humanity, spinning on this, this convertible planet, a tiny blue dot in the vastness of space at a thousand miles an hour. Fine. If it really is every man for himself, money is the only thing that talks, then can we drop all of this, this nonsense that we're all in it together and that there's some idea of society and democracy and paying our taxes for the common good and social infrastructure and all of that stuff? Because it. It clearly isn't. It clearly isn't. Yeah, you probably tell that to Mike Ashley. Mike Ashley, bless him. <laughs> God bless him. Uh, I think the takeover of the club will go will go well. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? Any dissidents will be invited to have a sit down, talk about it, and then they'll all be murdered and dismembered by a Saudi Arabian hit squad. Their bodies will be burnt in a back garden and they'll fly out of Newcastle airport with a wife and 16 children that they've picked up on a night out in Whitley Bay that they never knew that they had. There is a good thing to come out of this which is the reality that the, the Mackhams and the Smoggies, and Mackhams are people from Sunderland and Smoggies are people from Middlesbrough, and I say that with all due respect to just that, Lucy. Mackhams from the accent, Mackham take it back, and Smoggies from the fact that the sunsets in Middlesbrough are amazing because of the volume of petrochemical pollution that they have in their atmosphere. They're really happy about the fact that we're now the richest club in the world because for the first time in history, Newcastle now has a worse human rights record than Sunderland and Middlesbrough. So there. What were you going oh. to say about what were you going to say about, about the fact that we have poo in our rivers? You're going to say we've something. We've always had poo in the rivers. We've always yeah. had poo in the rivers. It's not new, okay? I literally had training sessions for Pears Head cancelled because back in 2006, seven, back in the glory days of the Brown Premiership. <laughs> um, there was a load of poo in the Thames because there was a really, really heavy rainstorm in the summer. Mm-hmm. And it overflowed and it went into the Thames because the alternative was it bubbles up through the streets. I know. Most people who live in London don't realise that it's technically under the water level. And if the barrier ever failed, 
two thirds of London would vanish underwater and the next time there was a seriously high tide. And I get that, but the Thames has always been full of poo. Ever since Roman times, the first things the Roman did was start directing their, their, their urinals and their public bathhouses and, their, and their, their long drop toilets into the Thames. The wealth of pudding lanes that you have in Chelsea and on the embankment and in the where the old docks were, it's, it's got nothing to do with making Christmas puddings for children. It's what they used to call poos. Old London Bridge actually had public toilets on it. So people could literally watch their poo and their weed drop into the Thames at the time. The point that, is that, that- That sounds like a spectator sport. And the Irwell famously clean river. How dare you suggest that anything in Manchester is any less than perfect. That, that burned out car that floated there for three <laughs> weeks was a, was a roundabout that we badly needed to help circulation. And, um, and, and, and just how magically clean has the Tyne always been? I mean, always. Okay, well, historically, there was a law passed in Newcastle that um, masters couldn't feed their apprentices on fresh salmon more than five times a week because they were getting sick of it. The Tyne was that clean. Now, admittedly, that was well over 150 years ago, and it's been a fetid industrial shithole for most of the time since. And admittedly, uh, where I currently row, um, we can't uh, dig up the mud around the steps and, and put in extra walkways because the stellar power station down the road dumped so much heavy metal into the water that if we actually dig up the mud, we'll all die of cancer within about 30 seconds. British waterways, for the most part, are cleaner than they've been for well, basically since the 1820s. Places like the Tyne and the Thames by the 1950s and 60s were technically classed as dead rivers because yeah, they're, and they're not anymore. You they're get not seals anymore. Seals in the Thames these days. There are seals in the Tyne, and the fact that they have 19 and a half flippers and six eyes is neither here nor there. Um, that, that, that's perfectly normal. Um, you, you see that in, you know, captive bred seals in SeaWorld all the time. But no, it's the waterways of Britain are cleaner than they have been for a very, very long time. That is very and true. And they're getting cleaner all the time. And yes, there was an interesting little spoiler amendment in a recent bill that said it would be illegal under any circumstances or sewage to be flushed into open waterways or the sea. But that would be, that would come in at a cost of about 150 billion to make that happen. It would do, Lewin, but here's the point. The point is not the quality of the water. The point is that Britain is remarkably reliant on the social infrastructure by which I mean things like sewers and waterways and runoffs and all that sort of stuff that our Victorian forebears put in about 150 years ago. And we've been using it ever since. And at some point we will have to do what they did, which is go, actually, we need to update this and it's going to cost a huge amount of money, but it will then last us for the next 150 years. And the reason why the Victorians took that step was because the Thames at some points was so disgusting. And this is, this is, I know you've read a lot of Pratchett and the jokes about the ank catching fire. The Thames used to catch fire. It was so disgusting during, um, 
I think it was 1852, but I, I can double check the date, that they had to actually close the houses of parliament. People hung, hung curtains made of camphor up in their windows because the stench was so disgusting. It caused cholera epidemics all by its own sum. And at that point they went, we've had enough of this, get me Bazalgette and 50,000 Irish navvies. Something must be done. One of the very clever things that he did, he made all his calculations about how big he would have to make this suicide system, had a little think, and then just doubled it, which was very, very clever of him. But at the same time, we are using this infrastructure, and it's actually working remarkably well. But every so often, due to the variability of nature, we have a problem, and you get put in the Thames, or the Irwell, or the Tyne, and the alternative to having that, I mean, again, it comes back to one American economist, and you know they call it the dismal science for a reason, said, given that nearly all pollution is the end result of either making money or saving money, there is a certain ideal level of pollution in the environment. Outcome of civilization is, is refuse. It, it always has been, it always will be. That's why archaeologists, when they dig up ancient monuments and ancient cities, basically find the rubbish pile. Um, and I completely, and it's, I completely get that. It is why recycling doesn't work because, because the problem is not what we do with it when we've got it. The problem is the fact that we use it in the first place. So, you know, sorting out your plastics and making sure that your bins go out at the right time does, does literally sod all. At some point, the giant plastic patch in the middle of the Pacific will start to grow, you know, plants and trees and birds, and the Chinese will probably claim it as as Greater China. So that's fine. I can I can rock with all of that. I'm just my main concern is is obviously you know the speed of my catches and my backsplash is vigorous. Someone behind me is going to catch cholera and die because simply because I've I've caught in pooey water. That's all I'm saying. And it doesn't happen very often. We, you don't get a lot of deaths from cholera in rowing, even though we still row on the Thames. And indeed the Irwell, which is a bit pretty of a bad. Hole. It's pretty bad, let's face it, it. I mean, well, it used to melt the bottom of the boats, and that's even when we were there, it wasn't it wasn't. But that, that was big. just the Colgate factory. That was just the Colgate factory. And I believe that Giles caught uh, Gullion Barr syndrome from Backsplash. And Knuckles ended up with kidney nephrosis. And I wouldn't like to say where my CKD came from, but if it's the Irwell, then I'll be putting an invoice into Manchester at some point. So given that poo in the river is completely natural, are you going to also argue that the Tory MP that's been found guilty of, of lobbying is also completely natural? Or is he just unlucky to have been caught, given that they're all at No, I'd, I'd, I'd say that is a, that's a fairly natural state of affairs. It's not just not a particularly good one fairly standard and by the book these days that if you're a conservative mp you're in it to make a buck i think if you're an a, a labor mp you're in it to throw acid in people's faces apparently i i think that you know there are the quality of mps has declined markedly since the city law firm started creaming off the brightest people in our law, I, yeah, but and it, it's, it's exactly it's exactly the same with kind of like with medicine. You know, the big problem isn't 
kind of like paying the NHS, it's sort of like giving the NHS enough money to pay doctors. The big problem is the fact that Goldman Sachs can always pay more. If you are a science-minded young man or young lady, and you can effortlessly count backwards in primes from a million five hundred, and you can get A star star stars in chemistry, physics, and biology, you're probably not going to become a doctor. You might actually make it to medical school before you know you get a tap on the shoulder in Cambridge. And it's not the KGB anymore. It's Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley. And they say, I've got a way for you to become a millionaire by the time you're 35. Would you like to come work for me and give up on this silly doctoring business? Well, it's the same reason why Stan Leludis went, thank you very much for the gold medal. I'm off to actually have my career now. If you have a brain in your head, then why on earth wouldn't you use it? I'd just like to correct the, 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 um, the misnomer, the presumption, the perception that once upon a time, MPs were noble and pure and good and did the decent thing. They've, they've, since the time of Alfred the Great, they've been a bunch of charlatans on the make. You know, you, you go into politics not to do, Good, because that's where the power is, and where the power is is where the money is. Where the the money is. I mean, for God's sake, there were there were there were known homosexual MPs who were passing laws that 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 meant that homosexuals would, would be hanged. There were people who were inveigling against fallen women who were taking syphilis home that they'd caught off a prostitute and passing it on to their wives and their and their children who were all members of parliament. It's it's enough about enough about your MP. <laughs> But enough about our MPs in the Northeast. It's always been a place of frauds, charlatans, hypocrites, the odd semi-decent person who tries to do their best and just gets completely mullered by the rising tide of shit. Let's not pretend that somehow we've reached an idea. We are seeing the, you know, the language and tactics of the 1920s and 1930s and the control of language and, and, and the, the, the use of the flag. I mean, God, we're giving speeches in front of flags now. We went to war to stop people doing that. You know, grow up at everyone. So another Tory MP has been caught. Well, you know, it's more the exception that proves the rule. What else has happened that Al has finally, finally, and by God, I have been waiting for this. She's released a new album. Are we talking about that? Is that rowing related? Can we you, talk about you that? You can, but I was only barely aware of it. I was just like, kind of, yeah, we can talk about Adele. You talk about music stuff. There's stuff I want to talk about, about Adele. Right. Well, anyone who knows me, which is basically anyone who's listened to the podcast and also Lou, who's known me a long time, will, will know that I'm being somewhat flippant about, oh, thank God, Adele has released an album. Fantastic. How wonderful. She's ended a desperate wait for yet more songs where she sings about how miserable she is that the man that she's dumped is now really, really happy with someone else. My life is now complete. Oh, she's now doing it about her divorce. Wonderful. Jesus Christ, save us from mediocrity. I always thought she sounded like Katie Tunstall, but never mind. Well, Katie Tunstall, you know, the, the, the Cherry Tree song was a banger, even though it did steal a theme tune from um, Rainbow. Did it? Rainbow flying high. Everything about her. It's exactly the same melody line. I, I know this because I've, I've proved it by playing them back to back on the guitar. 
she's lost a lot of weight. She's been uh, training with Rod Chin. I'm sure Rod will, will sort of like take yeah. necessary exceptions to that because she hasn't. She's, I, I don't know. I look at this and I just like, I mean, the woman has lost like a third of her body weight. And I'm quite interested by this. Have you seen, I don't know what it's called, Netflix documentary about Marty Fish. So Marty Fish, uh, Turner, very close friend, yep, of Andy Roddick, playing about the same time as him, had a revelation one day in his hyperbaric chamber that he wasn't really taking this seriously, this whole tennis business. And he was at, in the closing days of his career, you know, he was late 20s, and he decided, right, I'm going to go and take it seriously. And he went and he, he kind of like got a new training program, new coach, and he lost, he was meant to lose 17 pounds, but he lost 31 pounds. That's two stone. As a 28-year-old professional athlete, you losing two stone or fat. He said in his own words, he could just suddenly run forever. He could just run and run and run forever. And he had this burning, insane, increased competitive drive that just made mm-hmm. him angry any time he got. He started to look like he was losing. He was just like, and he just had this burning sense of confidence. Now, what does that sound like to you? If it wasn't there, it then didn't then go on to be a documentary about like having something of a mental health crisis. It sounds like he's doing a huge amounts of cocaine, but that's just me throwing that out there. Or, or, okay, right. Um, I have looked this up. Corticosteroids, erythropoietin, testosterone. So, you know, when I say corticosteroids, I'm talking about triamcinolone. Mm. microdosing testosterone, endogenous testosterone, and it's all about the right time. It's like 2009, 2010, when these things were very popular with lots of different people. Maybe prednisolone, probably thyroxine, a natural natural stimulant. Mm -hmm. And all of it, all of those things, apart from the erythropoietin, which has got no such, can lead to significant mental health side effects. Are you suggesting possibly that Adele is about to go pro in some form of elite sport? I'm very interested to see if Adele has a fairly serious emotional crisis in the next 18 months as a consequence of the weight that she's lost. Well, Lou, and I don't know if you've been paying attention, but Adele seems to have a fairly constant emotional crisis every 18 months because she then sings about it ad infinitum in every single one of her albums. Well, maybe she's just lining herself up for new material. But it, it is one of these things that the, there are drugs you can take to get and stay skinny. And those drugs aren't good for you. So basically, at some point, her management team has gone, Adele, we need the new album. We're going we're gonna to get you a personal trainer. We're looking at this year's Tour de France, but if we don't make it, you'll be incredibly lean, you'll be really miserable, and you'll just bang out those bangers on the piano. Quite possibly. Okay, well, okay. the first thing that I want to say is that I'm not being fattest uh, at all, and I, I, I'm in no position to be because I've been the same weight since I was 18 years old. 
uh, there's probably not as much muscle now to excuse it. So I really can't, I really can't comment on anyone else. And as long as she's happy with her body shape and her image and who she is, then that is wonderful. The, the, my problem with Adele is I'm going to be blunt. And I don't know if anyone's picked this up because I've been very nuanced so far. I really, really cannot stand her music. There are two main reasons for this. One is highly personal and linked to my experiences in Sheffield, which I'm not going to go on on record uh, on the podcast about. And the simple and more prosaic reason is the fact that she writes the same song over and over and over again. I was really happy and then I dumped you and you found somebody else and now you're married and you've got children and your life looks amazing and I'm so miserable and I wish you were back, but you're not. So I'm still miserable. There's nothing wrong with writing the same song over and over again. Metallica made a career out of it up until probably about the Black Album. They had one note, but it was a fantastic note. Though, never going to find someone like you rolling in the deep. Oh, for God's sake, making millions out of mediocrity. And let's be honest, these are mediocre ballads. If they'd been presented to Aretha Franklin in the 1970s, she would have went, no, I did R-E-S-P-E-C-T. I did the moment I wake up before I put on my makeup. Bring me something better, Dozier and Holland. I expect it. The only thing I can say good about Adele is that she gives Checkout Girls something to sing on the mic during drunken karaoke sessions. She's making millions out of mediocrity. Like Mike Ashley did for the past 10 years. You seem to think that I have some form of investment in Newcastle United Football Club oh. because, because I come from the Northeast. I will, I will tell you a true story that I've never told anyone else and certainly it'll be on record forever. When I first moved to Manchester, my best friend from Newcastle, Andy Hawkshaw, was already there. We'd, we'd grown up together and we'd, we'd been to the football together. And every Wednesday night, I would either meet him or he would meet me and we'd drive up to Newcastle for the Wednesday night game because that's what you did. And we'd been there under Keegan when we nearly won the league. And, we, you know, Kenny Daglish was like, was just like having, having misery piped into your brain without any kind of, you know, barrier method. And then we had Bobby Robson, who was a wonderful man. And then Bobby Robson got sacked, even though he'd managed to take us to the top of the table and, and all of his years in charge. And the football got worse and worse and worse. And one night I met up with Andy and we looked at each other and I don't remember which one of us said it. It might've been me because I'm a gobshite. I went, it's a long way to go to be miserable on the drive home, isn't it really? And he went, should we go and see Man City instead? So we went to Main Road and watched Man City instead because there comes a point where repeatedly kicking yourself in your own testicles stops being fun. Which is entirely why being a young man who in the mid to late 80s was looking for a sense of national identity and saw Wales repeatedly getting trounced by France in the, what was that then, the uh, Five Nations just means I can't support Welsh rugby anymore. I can't, I, I literally, I can't watch Welsh rugby on TV. I don't watch Welsh rugby games. But you had a long and glorious rugby tradition in Wales. I mean, we've not won anything in Newcastle since the 1950s. You know, my my mum was still working out, out 
how to tie her shoelaces the last time Newcastle lifted silverware. Didn't Alan Shearer win something with yeah. someone else who was quite close to Newcastle? No, he 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 won the league with Blackburn and then That's Alex. It. And then Alex Ferguson said, come to Manchester United because for the next 20 years, we're going to win everything until I retire. And he went, no, I must go back to the land of my fathers and play in a shit team and win fuck all but the hearts and minds of the Geordie faithful. And that's exactly what he did. And he became record scorer. And I know that in interviews now, he says... I'm really glad I came back. It was the only club for me. It's my boyhood club. But I bet when he goes to bed at night, he goes, I would have won eight leagues. I would have won two European Cups. I would have won the Ballon d'Or. I would have been the most decorated player of my generation. Oh my God, what did I do? Why did nobody talk me down off the ledge? You do have a glorious tradition of rugby in, in Wales, which we, which, which we don't have in football. I mean, we do. Newcastle, and this is actually a good signifier for the future. Newcastle has produced more professional footballers per capita than anywhere else in the UK. And it's produced the bulk of the what they used to call the creative genius, the ball-playing types, you know, the Gascoins, the Shackletons, the Charltons, um, that kind of thing. So there is talent here. There's always been talent here, but it's just, it's, and, you know, Man City was just up the road. I even on occasion, I shouldn't ever, shouldn't admit this, but I'm going to, I even went to Old Trafford and watched Man U, and watched Man U play. I'm going to get lynched at the boathouse next time I go down, if this is out before then. It, I literally had a flat directly opposite them. I could walk there in five minutes and buy a ticket and watch a game of football that, that I had no emotional investment in, but was just a good game of football. And then I didn't have to, to go all the way from Newcastle back to Manchester going, well, that's another Wednesday night. That was painful. With my best friend going, hmm, should we go and see Man City? Yeah, and then we'll go to Rush Home and have a curry and a pint afterwards. Perfect. So how long did it actually take to get up to Newcastle? I seem to remember it was something like we'd finish, we'd finish work and if we if we left at about half or five o'clock, we could park up on Richardson Road and then leg it down to get into the main stand. So probably about two and a half hours, maybe, maybe, maybe three hours on a bad rush hour. That's a lot of driving. Hey man, if you're born it, it's it, up here, it's your birthright. I mean, we've talked about fascism and we've talked about Paolo Di Canio and we've talked about, you know, the black shirts and the brown shirts. We've got the black and white shirts. If you've ever been, if you've ever been in Newcastle on a Saturday afternoon when there's a match on, it's like watching a load of salmon dressed in black and white heading towards the spawning ground. There's billions of them. It's like a zebra convention. Um, yeah, I mean, I've never, I've just never done football thing. It was just one of those things. Yeah, it's, it's like going to the theatre or going to the ballet or, or going to see stand-up comedy. You just you just do it because it's an experience, you know. And, and I grew up within walking distance. You see, for some reason, having stayed having stayed at um, your your childhood home the night before the the infamous head of the river, where we took a future world class start rower and introduced him to sweep rowing. Hello, Zach, if you're listening. Um, I, for some reason, had you closer to, to somewhere like um, Fulham or somewhere like that, but you, you weren't, were you? So you no, could have... No, North London, proper North London. You could have gone to Highbury and been, and, and been a gunner. Uh, could have done. Okay, that's fair enough. Yeah, no, ne- I just never grew up with football, um, which is you know, probably why I love the Olympics so much. 
I didn't grow up with it per se. My dad was, my dad didn't like it. Um, so he was more of a, a, a rugby man, to be honest. But it was just, if you're in the Northeast, I mean, it's just everywhere. It's just everywhere. It's just one of those things. It's a cultural thing. In the same way that if you go to Venice, there's gondolas everywhere, you know, it, or pizzas, one of the two. It's, it's, it's Italy, um, you know, something culturally appropriate. From the Northeast, there's St. James's. And there's football, and if you know, there's always a ball going around somewhere. It's weird. It's You've literally weird. reduced a great European nation <laughs> to two completely shocking stereotypes. You mean gondolas and pizza? <laughs> well, I... Gondolas or, or pizza or something or I don't know. I am. I'm trains that don't run on time. Okay, okay. Gondolas, pizzas, and fascists who come to manage Sunderland. Is that better? I mean, I I will give I'll give Italy their props. They they in the age of empire, they have had the longest running empire of anyone. I mean, for God's sake, the age of empire is getting shorter. There were two thousand years where the where the, the the Roman Empire was a was a viable entity. The British had an empire for three hundred years. America was the world's superpower for fifty years. India was the the imperial power for ten years. China about 13 years in you know so fair play to them they, they managed to hang on to uh, and they're very good at leather goods so pizzas gondolas maintaining an empire exporting fascism to Sunderland and and high quality leather goods is that better yeah there you go there, there's there's five stereotypes that that that's nuance that is practically <laughs> Um, I, I've just noticed that we've been talking for a little while now and, and we've we've drifted off the topic of rowing and not touched on the other things in our schedule. It might be a good place to leave it and then come yeah. back and, and call this an episode. So if, if you have been listening to this, dear listener, and by, by now there must be barely one of you left. <laughs> um this has been us doing what we did at the start, which is talking bollocks. We haven't talked any about Spaniels playing international football. We've made, we haven't done a fantasy rowing eight, although we'd like to do one of rowers that we have rowed with um, at some point. We just thought that we'd become a, a little bit formulaic and just, just feeding you a diet of world-class guests all the time. And what you really needed was the incipient sugar high of us skipping merrily from topic to topic with all of the lightness of leprechauns and hobnail boots. Indeed, and if you are an Italian or a woman, um, or indeed from Adele. Sunderland, or Adele, we, in fact, maybe not from Sunderland, we apologise sincerely, um, but not to Sunderland. No, no, never mind. But what are what are we apologising for? The, the the fact that the James Cracknells of this world have a have an advantage when it could. I mean, literally. When I walked in, when I first walked into Agecroft Boathouse, ladies were talking about James Cracknell. The last time I walked into Tyne's Boathouse, ladies were talking about James Cracknell. There is something, you know, being a knuckle-dragging meathead, and I'm not saying that James is, but he certainly has the physical characteristics of one. Um, it obviously works on some level. Indeed. Indeed. You know, so, I would. Uh, there I, go. But I think we've definitely got quite a lot to apologise to Italy. I love Italy. It's 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 actually one of the places I wanted to live and work uh, before life turned out the way that it did. I I think they are fine people, and if I was ever to need to buy a gondola, they'd be the first place I go. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I couldn't live in Rome though. I don't like Rome. Any particular like reason? Is was it was it the people on Vespers going chow? Was it was it the the the, the pizzas? Was it the lack of gondolas? I've been to Verona. Verona was lovely, and I've yes. flown over that whole kind of like Italian Alpine lakes bit. Okay, and decided much the way that um, Lance Armstrong did that I want to live here in a villa next door to George Clooney, preferably. Obviously. Um, But Rome, no. I found Rome dirty to the point of toxicity. There's this big white fresco or or series of statues, kind Mm. of like, it's lots of people on horseback. and. You mean Trajan's Column? Probably. Okay. Um, It's a bit wider than the column. There's lots and there's kind of lots of layers of it. There's lots of layers going up. I'm pretty sure it's Trajan's column, but if if Hypatia, if you're still listening, you can correct us on that. Yeah, if 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 I was if I was going towards there, I would say that I the diesel fumes got to me and I had the worst sneezing fit of my life. So we're not knocking it, and I'm sorry if I reduce your your centuries-old culture to um, five major stereotypes, but I I have a deep respect for the way that you treat um, food. So, you know, that that trumps all in my book. Marvellous. I think that is an episode. I I think this could be our finest one ever. 